0: There is something about that which is profoundly light and not dark. There is something about that that is profoundly light in the midst of darkness. There is something about that which is quite unlike anything this dark world could ever produce.
1: Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and today we're continuing a message we began last time. It's called Living as Children of Light from the book of Ephesians, where we come across this this great truth that as we come to know Christ, begin that relationship with Him, we're changed from people or children of darkness into children of light.
0: Well, that's exactly right, Steve. In this part of Ephesians, Paul's wanting to show us that as Christian believers, God has called us to live as a new people. And the central image he really wants to drive home for us here is this image of darkness versus light. And he introduces this this really wonderful idea that we are called to live as children of light. And it's, it's a challenge and, I think, an encouragement to us to take up that call to be children of light yeah,
1: to take up that call means that there probably is something that we are to do so for the person who is trying to wrap their mind around the concept of becoming a, a child of light a transformed person because of the jesus and the gospel what what is our part in this well, it's right to ask that, Steve, because the image of light versus
0: darkness only takes us so far, and we need some practical help knowing what it's going to look like to live as children of light. And actually, as we get into the passage here, Paul unpacks that in some very concrete and helpful ways for us. So I think we'll see it as we, as we move
1: along. All right, well, let's do that. Grab a Bible, join us in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 5 as we continue living as children of light. Here is Jonathan.
0: It's often said that Christians are meant to be are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And I think that's actually quite a good summary of what the New Testament calls us to. I think it captures something of the dynamic here. We will always have a struggle on our hands to navigate engagement with our culture and with our society around us. On one extreme, I think we can be tempted toward disengagement, thinking that the only place of safety is in a kind of evangelical monastery. We kind of create our own safe community. We interact only with Christians. We avoid all compromising influences. We consume only Christian media and so on and so on. It's a kind of monastic life. At the other extreme, well, we know that we need to be in the world for the sake of our our witness, But as we immerse ourselves in the world, we soon compromise with the world. We become so comfortable in the world that we lose all our distinctiveness. And no doubt in any Christian community, any given church, any given believer will tend to lean in one direction or in the other. But Paul sets out for us here a challenging standard. He, He doesn't give us the details, but he gives us a principle And the principle is this, don't participate in the deeds of darkness, don't live as the world lives, but at the same time shed light on the deeds of darkness. Be there, be there and not somewhere else, but be there as an utter contrast. Don't disappear from the world, don't retreat, don't shun the very presence of the ungodly. No, be present, but be present as a light. And as you live in that utterly distinctive way, your lifestyle and your character and your godliness, those things will shine the light of the gospel into the situation, and they will show up ungodly behaviors for what they are, for ugliness and darkness and sin. And for some who are living in darkness and see the shining light of a believer's life, for some, that witness is going to highlight for them the true nature of their lives and their behavior. And it's going to open a door for the gospel. Some will see the light of a believer's life and will be so moved to respond that they will indeed take up that call of verse 14. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. For others, of course, the believer's life of light, it will be a rebuke, but it will ultimately only serve to harden the darkened heart. It's going to produce a response. It's going to provoke a response, perhaps an angry response, but it's not going to lead to life. But the call for us, it is this call to live distinctive lives, lives of light, and to live them in the midst of darkness, navigating that is a very, very hard thing to do. I expect we all struggle with it and we have to grapple with it. It's hard to know how to be there, to be present in such a society, to know and to be known, to understand the culture and to be aware of what's going on, to participate genuinely in the life of the community, but to do so without participating in the deeds of darkness. Now, that is a challenge, if ever there was a challenge for the believer, And it's worth just acknowledging that each one of us will navigate that situation in slightly different ways. And we'll need to be gracious with one another as perhaps we'll make some different choices about how to do that. And as we seek to do it with integrity and godliness before the Lord. But that's our calling. That's what it means to be light in the Lord's. We're to shine in the darkness, and next, we are to live with focus and with care. Notice verse 15 with me. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, literally making the most of the time, because the days are evil, One of the phenomena we're witnessing as a society is the emergence of a new phase of life between adolescence and adulthood where young people, for a wide variety of reasons, are spending, on average, more years deciding where and how to settle in terms of career and marriage and home and all the rest. Some years ago, an influential article in the New York Times magazine entitled, What is it with those 20-somethings? put it like this. The changing timetable for adulthood has, in many ways, become internalized by 20-somethings and their parents alike. Today, young people don't expect to marry until their late 20s, don't expect to start a family until their 30s, don't expect to be on track for a rewarding career until much later than their parents were. So they make decisions about their futures that reflect this wider time horizon. Many of them would not be ready to take on the trappings of adulthood any earlier, even if the opportunity arose. They haven't braced themselves for it. Now, I think we've all observed something of this, And it is quite a fascinating social phenomenon. Older generations can look on and, I think, feel a little bemused. Or if they happen to be footing the bill while this process of finding oneself is going on, they might even feel a little frustrated. Maybe there are some nodding heads in the congregation. Young people working through that stage of life, well, they will have their own take on it, of course. Some will share their frustration with social and economic challenges, real challenges that make it hard to get established in today's world. But for at least some who find themselves drifting a little in those years, the fundamental reason may actually be quite simple. They haven't decided what life is about, what life is for, what their purpose is. And frankly, if you don't know what you're living for, if you don't have this clear sense of purpose, it is hard to live in a focused way. And perhaps it's not actually a great surprise that a whole generation are grappling with that question in a very real way. After all, there's almost nothing left today of a common worldview of a shared sense of values, even a shared sense of what a human being is and what it means to participate in and contribute to human society. See, all those questions, they're profoundly up for grabs. And to come of age in such a world, well, it's pretty bewildering. Where do you even start? No wonder it takes some time. But of course, those who have a sense of purpose and those who have a sense of direction and those who have an understanding of fundamental meaning, well, such people have a better chance of utilizing the time and making focused decisions. That's true on the really big scale. It's also true on the very small scale. Any decent time management book will tell you that if you want to increase your efficiency in your work week, you'd better start each day with a very clear sense of what you need to do, what you need to achieve before the end of day. Rolling out of bed and figuring it out once you get to the office, it simply won't do. You need to decide ahead of time what your purpose and what your plan will be. Living efficiently and with focus requires clarity and intentionality. And Paul tells us that as Christians, we must be those who live intentionally, who live wisely, who make the most of the time of opportunity that we have been given. And of course, as Christian people, we are actually in a very favored position to do that very thing. We're in a position to do it because we know what we're about. We know what our purpose is. We are here, Paul tells us, to please the Lord. We're sent into this dark world as a light to expose that darkness. And because we know what we're here for, because we know why God has put us here on earth, we do have a reason to maximize the time, to use it to the fullest of our ability. We look out on our future before us and we think, how can I most please the Lord with my life? What gifts and what opportunities has he given me that I could use for his glory? Where and how could I best serve him? Where perhaps can I be a light, where there isn't too much light? And if you're at that stage of life where you're thinking about the future and maybe struggling with questions and decisions about the future, I hope you're asking those kind of questions today. For all of us, as we look out on our year, as we plan our calendar, we ask ourselves, we should ask ourselves, how can I please the Lord this year, this month, this week, with the time that he's given me? What are the opportunities to serve his people, to minister his word, to show hospitality, to bring light into the darkness around me? I was so encouraged the other day just listening to a a church family and speaking with them as they shared how they've decided to become intentional about creating opportunities, creating them, not drifting into them, but creating opportunities to spend time with their neighbors, to bring their neighbors into their home. To create opportunities for the gospel. To be light in a dark place. And you see, to do that, it takes planning. It takes prayer. It takes creativity. It takes time. It takes energy. But they're out there and they're maximizing the time. And even as we plan our day today and our week this week what will it look like to plan for maximum effectiveness in service of the Lord Jesus Christ in witness to the world you see as christians we live focused lives because we know who we are we know why we're here and we recognize that this window of opportunity for gospel witness well it's short The time between now and the return of Christ may be very brief. And Paul tells us the days are evil.
1: Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth in a message called Living as Children of Light. Now we're going to pause here, but we'll get back to this message in just a moment, so stay with us. Hey, maybe you joined us late, maybe you have to leave early. Maybe you want to go back and listen to this broadcast again or any previous broadcast in our series, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. You can do that a couple of different ways. First, you can come to the website, EncounterTheTruth.org, stream the program, or download an mp3 for free. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app that's also free, and you'll find it at your app store. Simply look for Encounter the Truth, or again, come to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Let's get back to the message. Again, Jonathan.
0: We live careful and focused lives, says Paul, and finally we are to be filled with the Spirit. Verse 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The days are evil. The opportunities are limited. Therefore, know God's will. Don't be foolish about this. Know what he wants for you. And here is a key and a very basic thing that he wants for each one of us. Rather than getting drunk on wine as the pagans do, which will lead downward and downward and downward to all kinds of evil, instead of that, by utter contrast, be filled with the Spirit and be exalted to something higher. Be filled with the Spirit and do something supremely fitting for any human being created in the image of God. Praise your Creator. It's very fascinating to me to see that the opposite of wine-fueled debauchery is Spirit-filled worship. If the former is the epitome of the life of darkness, the latter is the essence of the light of life. Verses 19 and 20 are a pretty rich study on corporate worship, actually, and we could park just here for a good long time and think about that subject, and it would be instructive for us. We don't have time for a big study on that today, but just notice with me, I think it's important for us, notice with me what these verses tell us about our worship together, what we do even as we gather on Sunday mornings. They tell us that the direction of our worship is both horizontal and vertical, I wonder if you ever thought about that. We, verse 19, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And actually, if you think about the songs we sing, very often in the songs we sing, we are reminding one another of how good God is, of how wonderful our salvation is in Christ, of how sure and certain our hope is, because we all need to hear it. We're encouraging one another But at the same time, we are also addressing the Lord. We are praising him. We are, end of verse 10, singing and making music in our heart to the Lord. So you see, our corporate worship, it has this horizontal and this vertical aspect to it. It's not just a personal and private encounter between me and God, but it is a time of encountering God together and encouraging one another together as we minister to one another. It's also marked, Paul tells us, by thanksgiving. Just notice that verse 20. Giving thanks to God the Father for everything. That's an interesting statement. I don't think it means that we thank God for evil and thank him for suffering. No, we we thank him for himself. We thank him for his goodness, for his sovereignty, for his care. Whatever is going on, whatever the situation, we approach him with deep gratitude for the fact that he is God and he is good and He is trustworthy, and He is praiseworthy. We thank Him in every situation because we belong to Him, and we know who He is. See, that's Spirit-filled worship, that Spirit-filled living, and it's right there to challenge us because it's so easy, isn't it, to come before the Lord either privately or corporately with grumbling and even with ungrateful hearts. It's wonderful to have Gracia Burnham with us the other evening. Many of you were here to hear her story. Gracia and her husband served as missionaries in the Philippines and were kidnapped by terrorists some years ago. They were held hostage for a full year. Her husband was eventually killed. It was an unspeakable ordeal for her and certainly a dramatic and heart-rending story even to hear But one of the things that really stood out for me from that evening was the way in which the Lord had enabled Gracia to praise him and to thank him through the whole thing. As she looks back on her suffering and her loss, she only gives thanks to God for his goodness to her. And even in the midst of the trial, she shared how the Lord taught her to pass the days being marched through that awful jungle by singing her way through the alphabet. It was quite sweet. She'd find a hymn. I don't remember exactly which ones they were, but she'd find a hymn starting with A. All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? B, Be still my soul. The Lord is on thy side. And on and on she'd go all the way through the alphabet. Now, there is something, it strikes me, that is profoundly spiritual about that. There is something about that which is profoundly light and not dark. There is something about that that is profoundly light in the midst of darkness. There is something about that which is quite unlike anything this dark world could ever produce. And I think it's the very thing that Paul is talking about here. True worship is always marked by thanksgiving. And then just one more little observation. True worship its a significant observation, but a brief one. True worship is Trinitarian. Verse 20 again. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are truly filled with the Spirit, helped and enabled by the Spirit, will thank the Father. That's always going to be the direction of our prayer. We pray to the Father And we approach him by the work of, through the name of, by the high priestly work of, Jesus Christ, who through his great sacrifice at the cross gives us access to the Father. Now, that's the mark of being filled with the Spirit of God. Mutual, God-word, thankful, Trinitarian praise. And Paul says to us, be filled with the Spirit. It's quite interesting that he tells us to do something that we can't actually, on our own, do. I mean, the Spirit of God, he, he fills us. He comes to us in his sovereignty, in his grace, in his power. We, we aren't able to take hold of him and in fact, if we're believers, we have already received the Spirit. Remember what Paul said to us back in chapter 1 and verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. It's talking about conversion. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He is, he is speaking to Spirit-filled people already. And we already have the Spirit if we belong to Christ. But at the same time, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Evidently, we can have a richer and a fuller experience of the Spirit. And evidently, by implication, we can also have a reduced and an impoverished experience of His presence and His power. Evidently, the the Holy Spirit of God can have a fuller and freer reign in our lives, or he can have a more reduced influence. And the contrast that Paul has just painted for us, it's important here, it's instructive. He says, remember, don't be like the pagans and get drunk on wine and turn to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. You see, if we're giving ourselves over to sin and living in a way that denies the Spirit's work in our lives, that's out of keeping with who we are in Christ, well, we can full well expect A reduced experience of the Spirit of God. But if we're daily turning from sin and longing to be filled with the Spirit and to grow in Christ, well here is the prospect that Paul holds out before us. We will experience more of his fullness. We're children of light, Paul reminds us, and we are called to live as the people we are and the people we have been made in Christ for principles for living the transformed life that God has given us. Let's pray together that God would work in us the fruit of that light in increasing measure day by day, goodness, righteousness, and truth. And let's pray that he would do so for his glory.
1: You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and the conclusion of this message, Living as Children of Light. And if you've missed any part of today's broadcast or you want to go back and listen again or any other message in the series, just come to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, each month we want to say thank you for your financial support by sending you a resource that we think will help you grow in your relationship with God and the understanding of His Word. And Jonathan, this month you've picked out a book called Out of the Storm grappling with god in the book of job and i think when a lot of us think about job we think about suffering uh what does this book have for us for those who are struggling and really suffering right now
0: well this very rich and wonderful little book is essentially an exposition of the book of job it's an opening up of the text but to deal with this question of suffering where does Job take us on this journey to seek to understand suffering within the plans and purposes of God? What do we learn of God through Job? And also through the experience of suffering as we walk through suffering, as, as so many, I'm, I'm conscious, so many listeners at the present time will be walking through suffering. How, how do we make sense of that through the book of Job? And one of the really wonderful things that Christopher Ashe does in this book is as he opens up the book of Job for us, And walks us through this journey of suffering along with Job. He points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and teaches us how we find hope in the Lord Jesus, the one who came and willingly suffered in our place that we might be redeemed and have hope as we trust in him.
1: Well, we'd love to send you a copy of this book, Out of the Storm, as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. To find out more, give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's one eight three three nine nine eight seventy eight eighty four, 833 998 7884 or encounterthetruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.